Um, I'm going to be jumping into God's Word with you uh, to discover some aspects of the Christmas story that I think get a little bit overlooked. Uh, but before we do that, I want to start with a, a little story that I wrote, a little Christmas story that I wrote. But um, I'm actually going to ask for y'all's help, especially you kids. Look at this table right here. It's like all kids. But it's not just y'all. I see y'all kids out there with us today. I wrote a little story, but I got a little lazy, and I left out some parts. So kind of like a Mad Lib, I'm going to need you to help me fill in the gaps, okay? So y'all just shout out answers to me, and then I'll read this little Christmas story I wrote. Does that sound good? Anybody? Nobody? Okay. All right. First thing I need is a vehicle, some type of vehicle. Batmobile. We're going with Batmobile. Definitely. There's no way we're not using that. Okay. All right. Next, I need a a type of drink. I heard lemonade. We're going lemonade. Okay. A lot of good suggestions, though. Okay. Lemonade. I'm literally writing this down. Um, Batmobile, we got that. Okay, I need an adjective, a describing word. Fluffy, we're definitely doing that. Um, Good job. Now I need a sea creature. Octopus, we'll go octopus. All right. Now I need another type of animal, not a sea creature though, just any kind of animal. Jaguar. I heard Jaguar. This, this story is going to be so much better than I planned. Um, <laughs> okay, hold on. I've got to fill it in there, too. All right. And now the last one I need is a, a Christmas gift. Maybe something one of you kids really hopes you get. Teddy bear. Okay. I heard teddy bear. All right. I have what I need. Y'all ready for the story? Okay, a long time ago at the North Pole, far, far away, Santa packed up his Batmobile with presents, and he and the reindeer took off. As Santa was admiring the view of Greenland and counting icebergs, something he liked to do to pass the time, he reached for a steaming cup of lemonade, (laughs) but his hand slipped and he knocked over the cup. And as Santa leaned over to rescue the hot lemonade, from spilling, the Batmobile tilted to the side and all the presents fell out. (laughs) Right. Santa uh, and the reindeer watched helplessly as all the presents fell toward the fluffy ocean below. (laughs) Rudolph pulled the Batmobile downward to try to rescue the presents, but it was too late. The presents were bobbing in the icy water. But then something happened. As the presents hit the water, the sea creatures began to help. Dolphins, octopi, I believe is the plural, and penguins pushed the presents into one big clump. Even a narwhal speared some of the presents like a shish kebab, and then a blue whale scooped some presents into its mouth, and they made a huge pile in the ocean. Seeing the pile of presents, a flock of flying jaguars began to pick up the presents and dropped them back into Santa's Batmobile. He was so happy. Now the elves dried off the presents, and Santa thanked the sea creatures and the flying jaguars. He said, next year, I'll bring you all the best gift ever, a teddy bear. And that's it. Okay. Way to go, kids. That was great. We did not rehearse that. I mean, that could have gone south. Um, (laughs) But it did not. Uh, So 
think about that story for a second. Did everything turn out okay in the end? Okay, yeah. But did some things go wrong in the middle of the story? That's right, they did. And the reason I tell this fun story to start off with is, is I think it helps us to grasp um, a concept, an important concept that I want to explore with you tonight. You see, th- this is the idea, is that good stories, just like life, have both joy and pain in them. Um, for stories to resonate with us, whether they're fictional stories or true stories, they must have times of stress, sadness, confusion, and opposition. I mean, think of any superhero movie that you've ever seen or any great drama that brings tears to your eyes or a true story of perseverance that moves you. Whatever is good in those stories is only good because it grew out of the soil of struggle. Now, uh, way back in 1931, um, a very important conversation happened. Um, I think you could argue one of the most important conversations of the 20th century. Um, And it happened here. Um, This is called, I think I've got a picture here. This is called Addison's Walk. It's in uh, Oxford in England. And um, this conversation was between two friends. They were both English professors at Oxford. Um, And one of them was J.R.R. Tolkien, who would go on to write The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings. And um, the other friend who was on this walk was C.S. Lewis, uh, who would go on to become arguably uh, one of the greatest Christian thinkers of all time, certainly of the 20th century. Now, when they were on this walk in 1931, um, neither of them were famous. They had not written any books that were bestsellers. They were just, you know, obscure English professors. And um, at the time, Tolkien was a Christian, C.S. Lewis was a staunch atheist at the time of this discussion. And as they were on this walk, they spoke about the nature of stories and myths. And, and what Tolkien said to Lewis opened Lewis's eyes to the possibility that God might exist. And basically what Tolkien said to Lewis was, you know, Lewis, you love stories in literature where people give their lives for someone else, like they speak to you. And Lewis admitted, like, yeah, I am like mysteriously moved by stories of sacrifice. And Tolkien argued to him, you know the reason why you feel that way? The reason stories of someone giving their life for someone else reverberate so deeply in our hearts is because they're echoes of the real thing. They're echoes of the real story, the true story of God giving his life for us. And because it's true, it just resonates in our hearts when we encounter a story that in some way mirrors that. And this is a turning point in Lewis's life. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 22. Um, If you're unfamiliar with the layout of Scripture, the Gospel of Luke is the third book in the New Testament. This is where we see part of the Christmas story. Uh, We're going to jump into some of what Scripture describes about the birth of Christ, but we're going to look at kind of the end of the story. You might almost think of it as like the epilogue to the Christmas story. It kind of happens uh, in the afterglow, after Jesus' arrival. Um, Jesus had been born, he'd been visited by the shepherds, and now Mary, Joseph, and the newborn Christ have begun life together as a family. And so I want to start reading in uh, chapter 2 of Luke, verse 22. It says this, When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, that's Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. 
as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Okay, here's what's happening here. This is about 40 days after Jesus' birth. And Mary and Joseph go to Jerusalem for two reasons. The first, if you're taking notes, you can highlight, um, follow along with me. The first reason they go to Jerusalem is purification rites. This is about Mary. So uh, the Old Testament law required Jewish women, after they gave birth, to go through certain purification rituals 40 days after the birth of their child. They were still operating on the Old Testament law and system at this point, which involved sacrifices and those kinds of things at the temple. So they were commanded for her to go to the temple and to bring a lamb to sacrifice with them. Now, here's what the temple looked like when Jesus was a newborn. It's a huge structure in Jerusalem. They go there, and it's interesting. The Old Testament said if if you can't afford a lamb, you can just bring two pigeons, which was more affordable. Um, and, And we actually read there that that's what Mary and Joseph did. So that tells us something about their economic circumstances. So they go there to do these rituals for Mary having given birth. The second thing they were doing was, if you look at the passage again, highlight this, to present him to the Lord. This is about Jesus. In the law, parents would bring their firstborn son to the temple to sort of dedicate him to the Lord, to the Lord's service. So Mary and Joseph and Jesus are in Jerusalem for Mary's purification rites and also Jesus' dedication. This is a family that is faithful uh, to the Lord and God's commands. And this would have been a very emotional and memorable moment for them. Let's keep reading. Verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. We just saw a picture of that. He went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. So it's this amazing moment where the infant Jesus is in the temple. He's going there to be dedicated by his parents. And there's this man, Simeon, circle his name if you're taking notes, uh, Simeon, um, that the Lord had told him, you're going to, before you die, you're going to see the Messiah. And, and, and Simeon, by the power of the Spirit working in him, he recognizes the newborn Jesus as the Messiah. There was nothing about Mary and Joseph and Jesus that would have stood out. It had to be God opening his eyes to this because, you know, there was no fanfare. Mary and Joseph and Jesus weren't, like, glowing. You know, there were hundreds of people in the temple at any given time. But Simeon was able to see, with God's help, who this child was going to be and what he was going to do. And it says uh, Simeon had been waiting, this very interesting word, for the consolation of Israel. I would highlight that word. That word actually means comfort and encouragement because the Jewish people for centuries had been oppressed and struggling and wondering, God, when are you going to intervene and fix this situation? Politically, socially, they were just in turmoil. And this man Simeon is just trusting God one day is going to make this better. And here now is this child who's going to do that. 
Um, And look what he says about the child. The child would be a light for the Gentiles, highlight Gentiles, and then also a glory um, to the people of Israel. Um, So highlight Gentiles in Israel. You know what that means? That's the whole world. Because Gentile means not Jewish. So he's going to be the glory of the people of Israel, and he's going to be a light for the Gentiles. That means this child is going to bring good news for all people. He will offer healing and comfort and hope for everyone. Now, some of you parents uh, have baptized your children in our church or maybe in another church or, or had your child dedicated. It's a very special moment. And Mary and Joseph were having this moment. They're at the temple. Simeon is saying these amazing words about their child. Their child's going to be a light for the whole world. This is a confirmation of what the angel Gabriel had told them when Mary was first pregnant. So it's this incredible moment. But Simeon is not finished. He has some other things to say. Let's keep reading. Verse 34. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So, if we might compare the Christmas story, the nativity, to music, um, it's all been in a major key up to this point. And this right here, what Simeon said, is the first minor chord. It's the first dark cloud on the horizon. It's the first inkling there would be pain in the future of this child. Um, It's the shadow of the cross over Christmas. And what did Simeon say? Highlight this. He said, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. In other words, everyone's going to respond to this child one way or the other. There's going to be no neutral reaction to this child. And that's true in that day and in our own day and in our own lives. Some will respond one way, some the other. Some will respond in a way for their rising, some for their falling, Simeon says. And then he elaborates. He says this. Highlight this phrase. Jesus will be a sign that will be spoken against. This means this child will not be universally loved and celebrated. There will be people who oppose him. And he says this, highlight this phrase, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed because of this child. Jesus' appearance will shine a light on each person's inner life, not just in his day, in our day. He will expose where everybody stands with God. Now, look, if you're Mary and Joseph and you're there at the temple for the dedication of your child and you've been given this information from the Lord of these grand plans for this child's life, this must have been very hard to accept. Because like the rest of the first century Jews, Mary and Joseph would have thought the Messiah would be this triumphant military leader who was going to come and and take over and overthrow Caesar and usher in his kingdom in a tangible way on the earth. They did not have a concept of the Messiah suffering and being a divisive figure. It just didn't compute. And all they had heard from the angel Gabriel earlier was that this child, miraculously born, that he would be great, he'd be called the son of God, he would reign forever, he would save people from their sins. This is the first they're hearing of anything negative, of anything troublesome on the horizon, that their son would not be universally loved. And if that isn't hard enough for them to accept, Simeon puts a finer point on it, and he says this to Mary, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. 
So she had just finished these purification rites, these, these religious practices related to having given birth and, and her son's dedication. It's a milestone moment. And she's being told that her beloved son has a hard road ahead and that whatever happens to him, she will not come out unscathed. She has something difficult in her own future too. And they spend a bit more time in Jerusalem. And then we read in verse 39, kind of the closing of the section. It says, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. So even though there's this hard road ahead for this child, God's hand is on his life and his family's life as they face the years ahead. Now, I wonder... If Mary was anything like us, which she was, she's just like us. Did those words of Simeon echo in her mind for years and years, and in Joseph's mind as well, wondering what that means? A sword will pierce my own soul. What does that mean? You know, every time Jesus stayed out too long after dark, or every time he got sick, or every time she couldn't find him in a crowd, did she wonder, like, is this it? Like, is this what Simeon meant? And I think it's so easy for us to go through life like that, to be governed by fear. When we go through hard times where we wonder, you know, where God is, we doubt his presence in our life, we wonder about his purposes for us, we feel afraid. That's what Mary and Joseph were experiencing, I think, in this moment. You see, they were told the beginning of the story, right? The Savior is going to come to earth. The Messiah is here. And they were told the very end of the story, he's going to reign forever. He's going to save people from their sins. They're now being told about the painful middle that they didn't know about. They didn't know everything wasn't going to go right or be easy. I think that's what we grapple with in our lives is, you know, we can encounter Christ, respond to the gospel, know the beginning of the story, discover who he is. We can have hope in the end of the story, eternal life, a life that will be free of pain and sadness, the resurrection life. But life in the middle of that story is not always easy. And at Christmas, what we have to realize is we are celebrating the beginning of God's grand story of rescue. And it is worth celebrating. And it is the most joyful moment in the history of the universe. But Christmas is not the whole story. We've been hinting at this over this last month, if you've been here with us um, throughout December. But I want to just put this on the screen, this key idea that is so important to remember at Christmas. And it's this. The purpose of Christmas is Easter. The purpose of Christmas is Easter. The reason Jesus came to earth in the flesh was to grow up and one day pay the ultimate price for your sins and for mine, to tear down the barrier between us and our creator, to rescue us. A costly rescue mission. That's why he came. Easter is the end of the story. Resurrection is the end of the story. And it's an amazing story that we won't fully comprehend until we live it. It's the best ending ever. But why is that ending good? Because our world and our lives are in desperate need of repair and rescue. That's why it's a good ending. There's pain in the middle. But Jesus bore that pain himself. He took that on himself. He paved the way for that good ending. 
And he is with you, and he understands, he really understands the struggles that you are experiencing in the middle of your story. He gets it. You can turn to him. You can find encouragement for the journey. He, I love the way the author of Hebrews describes this. In Hebrews 2, 18, he's talking about how Jesus lived life like we did. And he, look what he says. Because he, that's Jesus, because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Now, the translation of that word into English is tempted is not the most precise. In the original language of Greek that Hebrews is written in, it's closer to tested. So Jesus suffered in the middle of the story. He was tested like we are. And because of that, he really does understand what you're going through, whatever that might be. He understands. He gets it. A little bit later in Hebrews, it says, Jesus sympathizes with us in all of our weaknesses because in every way that we are tested, he was tested. Did you catch how many ways? Every way that we are tested, Jesus was tested. He went through it. Jesus experienced relationship challenges, physical illnesses, economic uncertainty, family fractures, loss. He lived through all of that. And because he went through those things himself, he hurts with us when we hurt. He understands. And, and actually, Hebrews tells us how we should respond, knowing that Jesus understands what life is like. It says in Hebrews 4.16, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's saying because Jesus really understands what we go through, we can approach him with confidence, knowing he gets it and he cares and he hurts with us. And he's walking with us through the ups and downs of our life, the green pastures and the dark valleys, as it says in Psalm 23. This is how, right here, we can go about the middle of our stories. We can approach God confidently asking for mercy and grace and help, and he is there. He promises to be. You know, Christmas, it's like the celebratory fanfare at the beginning of God's great story. It's the overture to the overturning of sin and death. But the middle of the story has some pain, as Jesus' story had some pain, and Mary and Joseph's did. There's pain in your story. And in mine, there is, in this life, there's loss, there's confusion, there's anxiety, there's disillusionment. But guess what? That is not the end of the story. It is not the end of the story. Whatever you're going through right now that feels overwhelming, or maybe you see a dark cloud on a horizon, or you are just in the depths of depression, or you're struggling, or you're in a situation you don't know how to get out of, you have to understand, because of Jesus, that is not the end of your story. It is not the end. Easter, the purpose of Christmas, is the good ending of the best story ever. Eternal life, resurrection life, awaiting those of us in Christ. As it says in Revelation, no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. The old things are over. That is the end of the story and we can take comfort in that. So as we celebrate Christmas, the first chapter of God's rescue story, let us take comfort tonight in knowing that we know what is on the last page, the end of the story.